We're on page 439. This is the 45th chapter. The Bengali Joy-Permeated Mother. <clears throat> We've already met Ananda Muima. We've had a few moments with her in our last class. And we saw that uh, the moment she saw Yoganandaji, she immediately relates to him and calls him and addresses him by the name Father. Father, oh Father, you've come. Oh Father, it's we're meeting for the first time in this life. So she's, as we said, you know, she has no pretense. She's dropped all. <laughs> she's immediately, you know, embraced him. And, but he's somehow still pretending as if he's never met her. He doesn't know her. He, you know, he's playing his role. And she said, I, I'm not going to worry about any role. I'm not going to think about anything. Um, because in per particular, she's been given, you can say, almost the mission of not not relating to her physical self at all. Uh, this is not something all saints are given, and we've seen this, you know, in this much of the book and any saint's life, life that you've tuned into. Everybody's just been given a very unique expression. In one uh, quote from the autobiography of a yogi, I don't know if you've already read it, we probably have. Uh, over there it says, God plants his saints in the unlikeliest of soils, lest man reduce him to a rule. So we've got this idea that everybody has to look a certain way. Oh, if you're a saint, this is your reality. If you love God, this is the only way you can express that love. And of course, we do it because we like one particular aspect and then we think that's all there is. But what's beautiful about the autobiography, in addition to just everything that we've received, is an introduction and an awareness of how many different ways they are to relate. So to somebody, Anandamoyima in a certain way represents the epitome of what it means to be a saint. Bilkul in bliss and uncaring about the body, uncaring, you know, as it said, if her devotees don't feed her, she won't eat. So this is like, oh wow, this is the one I want to be. Whereas on the other hand, you've got Yoganandaji very much like, you know, maintaining the, the realities of the role that he's been given, you know, I'm this humble uh, disciple, I've just started learning about the spiritual path. He's not, he's not embracing, at least not so much in this book, of course, to his own disciples, he was able to reveal so much more. But in this book, he's very much playing that role. And then we see every saint he's met playing such a unique role. Lahiri Mahasaya is so different. Uh, Sri Yukteswarji is so different. He's another one which we're like, that's the you know kind of saint I want to be. But also because we think of them as oh, a little removed, a little indifferent, uncaring of what's going on in people's lives. Somehow, I don't know, we, we get attracted a little bit more to the outward show as well. But in this particular case, we'll get to enjoy it fully. We'll get to see the particular, you can say, role that Ananda Muima was given, which was just complete abandonment. And she could just be a child of God and she could just be in bliss and nothing else mattered and that would be a lovely you know experience to have but it's also helpful to see that it's not the only way god needs to be expressed i was thinking this is like a little bit distortion from you know who she was but she was extremely beautiful <laughs> as well as a saint you know she she was like she had such a magnetism she was beautiful her body was perfect her eyes his her facial expressions i mean imagine everyone who would look at her they only saw like perfect beauty physical beauty so what she did with all that with all that magnetism he just gave all that to the divine so whatever consciousness was coming towards her due to her extreme beauty i mean she was really beautiful if you see pictures of her in her youth i mean i can only imagine for even disciples even for regular men you know to look at her and and try to bring themselves to their center and look at her only as a divine being and not being attracted to that physical magnetism that emanated from her. So it's like God gave her in that particular incarnation the perfection also of physical beauty. 
and she was completely detached from it. I mean, she, she didn't see that. Rather, what she did with that, offered that back to the divine. So for disciples, for other woman disciples as well, to see that completely offering herself everything she received in this incarnation to the divine, that's, that's very powerful, how she was able to not even acknowledge what a magnetism emanated from her, just, just like her physical presence, which is unique from saints. You don't True. find <laughs> saints who are so <laughs> magnetic, you know, and, and appealing physically. All of them are a little bit like quirky, or, you know, something <laughs> is missing in, in their personality. But she was exquisite as a woman. So that, that I thought that's an interesting remark. Yeah. Refreshed by her dip in the infinite, Anandamuima was now focusing her consciousness on the material world. Father, please tell me where you stay. Her voice was clear and melodious. At present in Calcutta or Ranchi, but soon I shall be returning to America. America? Yes. An Indian woman saint would be sincerely appreciated there by spiritual seekers. Would you like to go? You can see Master also kind of, you know, wherever he went, he was trying to always Six gather years. people and said, come, let's show these guys. Because he was also very interested in experiencing and drawing the different ways people loved God. That's why we see in this book, he's going and finding this saint, he's going and trying to tune into that saint. Um, there's a Another aspect that's not in this book is, in fact, in um, when he was in Mysore, he met uh, BKS Ayangar, who's very famous for Ayangar Yoga. And he wanted to take, at that time, Ayangar was maybe 16, 8, 17, 18 year old, a very young boy. And he, with Master, Master ha, was giving a talk in Mysore, and he had invited Ayangar, because he knew he was into yoga, to do some yoga postures as part of that same thing. And afterwards, he said, come with me to America. And he, again, he had this intention to take, you know, handpick the, you can say, the jewels of India and take them there because he really wanted people there to also have an experience. So here he is like, wow, a woman saint, you know, because that would add a whole other reality. Uh, up till this point, he's not had the opportunity to present that to the people there. So he's like, a woman saint would be sincerely appreciated by spiritual seekers there. Would you like to go? And Ananda Moima remarks, if father can take me, I will go. <laughs> this reply caused her nearby disciples to start in alarm. <laughs> Suddenly, it's always the disciples who <laughs> get a little, you know, agitated yeah, yeah. by any decision that's being made. I remember sometimes, you know, you'd be in Swami's presence and, uh, you know, he'd be in a particular community and Swami would suddenly say, I think maybe we should move somewhere else and we should, <laughs> everybody would start getting like all like agitated. The tension in the room, like, oh my God, where is Swami, he we don't really need to expand the work, do we? I mean, we're so happy here, you're with us. What, what difference does it make if we need to go and help other people somewhere else? You stay here, you be around. So the same with the disciples, you know, they're like, whoa, she's going to leave? Uh, and so they have, of course, they have a very good reason for it. They say, 20 or more of us always travel with the blissful mother. One of them told me firmly, we could not live without her. Wherever she goes, we must go. So everybody hitched themselves. So beautiful, though, All right, yeah. you want to take her? You're going to have to take 20 of us along with you. And so Master said, reluctantly, I abandoned the plan as possessing an impractical feature of spontaneous enlargement. Please come at least to Ranchi with your disciples, I said on taking her leave. As a divine child yourself, you will enjoy the little ones in my school. Whenever father takes me, I will gladly go. A short time later, the Ranchi Vidyale was in gala array for the saints' promised visit. The youngsters looked forward to the day of festivity. Oh, looked forward to any day of festivity. No lessons, hours of music, and a feast for the climax. I guess we can all remember our days in school. <laughs> Any little moment we got where we did not have to study and we could just have fun all day was greatly appreciated. Victory Anandamuima ki jai. 
This reiterated chant from scores of enthusiastic little throats greeted the saint's party as it entered the school gates. Showers of marigolds, tinkles of cymbals, and lusty blowing of conch shells, and the beating of the mridangam drum. The blissful mother wandered smilingly over the sunny Vidyale grounds, ever carrying within her the portable paradise. It is beautiful here, Anandamoyima said graciously as I led her to the main building. She seated herself with a childlike smile by my side. The closest of dear friends she made one feel, yet an aura of remoteness was ever around her. The paradoxical isolation of omnipresence. It's a very important nice point, one, yeah. even though it may not seem this way. And it's a lot about also how we relate to one another. I recently was having a conversation with one of our friends and he was having trouble with one of his friends. And, you know, in this real complete familiarity that we create with one another, we just start stepping into each other's worlds and, you know, have crossed so many boundaries. And I've gotten so entangled, it becomes harder and harder to communicate with one another how you really feel. Now you're like, will they get upset? And there's all these expectations and these obligations that I've kind of woven around this friendship. And you see how Master describes the divine, the closest of dear friends. So there's, there's no sense that you really feel that they're just the absolute closest to you. Yet an aura of remoteness was ever around her. And this is, a, this is a balance that each of us need to find in our own lives. Um, this is something everybody said of Swamiji as well. Wouldn't, I don't know if you know, but anybody who was asked, like, you know, what do you think of Swamiji? They'd always say, oh, he's my best you know, he's friend. My best friend. <laughs> Most of them didn't even know him or didn't ever spend any real time with him to even be, you know, remotely what you would expect of a best friend. Like, oh, you know, Yaram, Jaffi Maharaj, Rose, you know. When we think best friend, we think we're walking around hand in hand every day, spending hours with one another. But yeah, that's not needed at all. It's just that immediate sense of, wow, this person cares about me so deeply, loves me so deeply. And then at the same time, you know, there's also that impersonality in that relationship where there's, and I like the way he says, this is the paradoxical isolation of omnipresence. Because when you're present in absolutely everything, you cannot get too attached to, to the one thing in front of you. And that's what attachment is. Attachment is choosing the one thing at the expense of everything. You can either have omnipresence or you can decide this is my friend, this is my wife, this is my husband, this is my child, this is my reality, this is my body. That's what attachment does. It excludes. Then you have to choose that one thing. Usko choose karo, ya sabko choose karo. And that's what impersonality allows us to do. It allows us, in fact, to choose everything. Even the people beyond your family, even the people beyond your children, even the people beyond your closest friends, they are just as close to you as the person that you've been living for the last 30 years with. And that's a hard one, isn't it? Because we are conditioned to believe the person I've been living for 30 years with should be special should be different. I should be much closer to them than to anybody else. But that's the paradox of omnipresence. I was thinking that that's exactly what one felt in Swamiji's presence. You could be physically close to him, but it had nothing to do with being in physical proximity with him. In fact, the more you became personal with him, the more you could see that he was just, you know, kind of sending you somewhere <laughs> else. So you could get the point that had nothing to do with him, with his personality, with his physical presence. And sometimes he will go into seclusion and you won't see him for three months, but you felt his presence closest and closer than when he was physically close to you. So it's not about the physical proximity. It's, it's the, the ability 
to feel their omnipresence all the time around us. And, and I think that would be a very good thing to start practicing even between us, between gurubais, that I, I don't need to almost draw attention from somebody else to feel myself special or to feel myself I'm loved by, in that particular case, by people or my gurubais, because guess what? I'm always constantly loved. And it's an omnipresent love. And that's important for us to keep tapping into that. It has nothing to do with, with the physical proximity. It has to do with the proximity of our consciousness, with the consciousness of the divine. And many people felt in Swamiji's presence like, like far, like they couldn't connect with him even though they were in his close proximity. So it's, it's about where our consciousness is. And the more we are able to tune into that omnipresence, the closer we will feel with one another. And that's, that's a wonderful practice on a daily basis that, wow, let me see if I can impersonal, impersonalize my relationships and personalize my relationship with omnipresence. You know, it's a little bit of a, of a shift. Like, how can I do both equally, but the personal relationship should always be a little bit more emphasized with the divine. Please tell me something of your life. This is a usual question master asks everybody. <laughs> you know, you can see the biographer in her, like ready in him, ready to take notes quickly. And Ananda Vima, again, just no pretense. Father knows all about it. Why repeat it? So she's really like not giving into this. Like, I don't know what you're doing here. You already know everything about my life. You know, we're already united in God. So I don't know why you're asking. She evidently felt that the factual history of one short incarnation was beneath notice. I laughed and gently repeated my question. Father, there is little to tell. She spread her grateful hands in a deprecatory gesture. My consciousness has never associated itself with this temporary body. Before I came on this earth, Father, I was the same. As a little girl, I was the same. I grew into womanhood, but still I was the same. When the family in which I had been born made arrangements to have this body married, I was the same. And when passion drunk, my husband came to me and murmured endearing words, lightly touching my body, he received a violent shock as if struck by lightning. For even then, I was the same. So this is her, all right, let me tell you my life. This is her version of how she sees herself. Yes, I was the same. And as you can see, she has a very unique expression, isn't it? She didn't go through what we would usually see and what we saw in Master's life. Born and there was this intense seeking and so now he's looking and he's studying and he's receiving and now he's found his guru and this is the way that most of us, the experience most of us have had. She of course has had, again, a little bit more of what we would call the romantic idea of sainthood. You know, from the very beginning, I was two years old and I was already in God. And so all of us feel like, oh, I miss that. <laughs> so now I have to try the next incarnation. We keep feeling somehow that that's the expression we need to have. But it's beautiful that she got to have that particular experience. I was always the same. Uh, whenever, wherever I was in God, before I was asked to uh, arrive on this earth, I was exactly in Divine Mother's presence. And I'm still in Divine Mother's presence in every stage of my life. But you can see what that means is that my identity has never shifted. Because it's still a conscious choice. She could, when she wants, as she says, when she comes down, she starts relating to the world. At that time, she is able to realize that, no, Medha is Medha and this person is this person. And she did, in fact, relate to people very individually, very personally. You know, she never had a practice of her own, uh, but she did give... Uh, the Diksha. mantra diksha to a lot of people, but to a few people, especially to her disciples who were 
uh, renunciates because there were a lot of swamis who would come and take discipleship from her. To them, she would go and she would in fact send them to different paths. And uh, there were quite a few of her disciples who came to learn Kriya Yoga as well because that's what she told them. You need to learn Kriya Yoga, you need to learn. So because she didn't have a practice of her own, but she was very aware this person needs this, this person needs this, this person needs this. So she had that ability. But her identity, she chose always to keep with God. Never to shift and say, okay, now I'm this body. Oh, now I'm a woman. Now I'm a wife. Now I was a child. And that kind of constantly changing reality, which we identify very much with. Yet at the same time, we're also always the same, aren't we? I mean, a part of me still wonders, when am I going to grow up? You know, when am I going to become an adult? Because I still feel a lot like when I was a child. I don't feel like, oh, wow, now I've suddenly, you know, when we were children, we keep looking at the adults and say, wow, one day I'm going to be like them and I'll know everything and I'll be able to do whatever I want. But I still feel the same as I was in a child, still a little lost, <laughs> still a little confused, still a little unsure, still not clear, you know. As a child, you always assumed adults are making decisions like really intelligently and really smartly. You'd look at your parents and you'd see them, wow, oh, look at them, you know, they're just deciding to do this and they're just doing this. And when you become an adult, you realize nobody knows what they're doing and everybody's just guessing most of the time and trying to figure it out and making it up as they go along because their consciousness is still the same, even when they were children and even when they're adults. And of course, our sameness is at a little lower level than Ananda Mohima's sameness, but we can also see a thread of a constancy, even as we grow. There's still a constancy in our own sense of self. We still kind of relate. I can relate very much still to just being a young boy, only from the sense of my awareness, not from the sense of my body, of course. And that's an interesting thing, that sameness. I was thinking that this paragraph, from the entire chapter, this is her teaching, mm. really. This is what she came on earth to share with us, that changeless spirit, that perfect detachment from what's going on around us and how little impact or non-zero impact the outward circumstances of her life and her karma touched her spirit. When I think about this and I look at my life and I ask myself, am I always the same even throughout one single day? <laughs> am I always like ever blissful, ever joyful and attached by what's happening around myself? Of course not. Every five minutes, I'm reacting to what's happening around me. The people I am with, the things that I see on Instagram, the things that, you know, like, I'm constantly changing according to my outward circumstances. And I'm not talking here about big karma or any dramatic situation that takes a, another level, but you see here all the things, all the stages of her life. He had to go through childhood and marriage, you know, like all those stages of her soul evolution. She had to play exactly the same thing we all have to go through in life, all those stages, yet he was always the same. Just think for a moment what that would mean for you throughout the day. I mean, like, I can be Srini, you know, always in that centered state where nothing touches me, where my spirit remains always in the omnipresence. And no matter how difficult, how many obstacles, how many problems I have to resolve on a daily basis, how many people I have to interact with, how badly they may respond to me, how many disappointments, how many, I don't know, just the list goes on. I remain the same. 
And that's what we all are trying to achieve, isn't it? That's the state that Swami Kriyananda also achieved. He said, everything that I did, I could just never look back. Just leave everything behind and never look back because it doesn't affect me. Everything that I have done, what others have done to me, it has not had any impact in my consciousness. And how many of us are being impacted every minute by everything that's going on around us? So I think this was her, her main teaching. You know, this is what my disciples should aspire for, to remain untouched by duality, by your own karma, because you know, we'll have karma to face, karma to deal with, or our own emotions are karma we have to face. Sometimes we don't even need anybody. <laughs> Just dealing with our own issues, with our own thoughts, with our own emotions. I mean, just sometimes you feel so exhausted just to, <laughs> you know, go above yourself, your own inner karma. And it would be nice to try on a daily basis, can I emulate, if nothing else, Ananda Moima's consciousness? You know, and, and for a woman, in this case, let's, let's even bring the bar down a little bit, no? As a woman, there are a little bit more emotional energy always involved. And I love the fact that God chose a woman who has so many little things always to deal with karmically, achieved and achieving that state of consciousness. So, yeah, things to meditate on and Try to remember. <clears throat> Continuing with the episode with her husband. After that, lightning strikes his body. My husband knelt before me, folded his hands, and implored my pardon. Mother, he said, because I have desecrated your bodily temple by touching it with the thought of lust, not knowing that within it dwells not my wife, but the Divine Mother, I take this solemn vow. I shall be your disciple, a celibate follower, ever caring for you in silence as a servant, never speaking to anyone again as long as I live. Thus I may atone for the sin I have committed today against you, my Guru." So. She was also given a very, very high soul as a husband, which, uh, as we all know, can, can be very challenging if, the, if your spouse isn't, to a certain degree, also at least somewhat aware of the realities that you are trying to live. But in this particular case, of course, imagine that. Just all it took is for that one signal for him to get it. All right. And then for him to take such a powerful vow, <clears throat> since then, not having spoken a word you know, till the end of his life and serving his guru, his wife, uh, uh, as a servant. Beautiful. Even when I quietly accepted this proposal of my husband's, I was the same. <laughs> so he comes back to that theme. And father, in front of you now, I am the same. Even afterward, though the dance of creation change around me in the hall of eternity, I shall be the same. So for her, that's as Narayani said, that's the teaching. Wherever you place me, whatever you, wherever you put me, I will be the same. I like that, that she puts it, even when he made that proposal, <laughs> I was the same. There was not even a hint of me saying, oh, wow, oh, amazing, look at that. My husband's going to do this for me now. You know, as Narayani was saying, how we get excited or disappointed at the smallest of things. Ananda Mohima sank into a deep meditative state. Her form was statue still. She had fled to her ever-calling kingdom. The dark pools of her eyes appeared lifeless and glassy. This expression is often present when saints remove their consciousness from the physical body, which is then hardly more than a piece of soulless clay. We sat together for an hour in the ecstatic trance. 
She returned to this world with a gay little laugh. Please, Ananda Muima, I said, come with me to the garden. Mr. Wright will take some pictures. Again, as you see, Master's really in, in, a, in the next chapter of Giri Bala, another you know, woman saint that we'll go into. He says over there, he's like, I have to take pictures because if I don't, my Western audience will not believe <laughs> that these things exist. So he's like, I need to have proof with everything that I write. These were the people that I met. Of course, Father, your will is my will. Her glorious eyes retained the unchanging divine luster as she posed for many photographs. We, of course, have seen some of them, you know, where she has her head with one master and they're hugging each other. And it's just a very beautiful, that scene. And uh, for her, it's like, I'm with my father. So you can see there that There are actually love. many pictures of her. If you go online, you can see, you know, through all the stages of her life and you get a glimpse of that, you know, changeless consciousness, omnipresence in her, her beauty. Even, even we have talked about this, how our physical body and our posture uh, represents a state of consciousness within each one of us. You can see also her, her bodily posture, her, her movements, you know, how she pauses. You know, you can see like the divine flowing through her, through her posture, through, through the way she, she just, the, her entire being, you know, and it's, it's nice to just go through those pictures and, and see that emanating from her body as well. Time for the feast. Anandamuima squatted on her blanket seat, and a disciple was at her elbow to feed her. Like an infant, the saint obediently swallowed the food after the chela had brought it to her lips. It was plain that the blissful mother did not recognize any difference between curries and sweetmeats. Again, another one of those, I am the same, you, you, whether somebody's feeding her something sweet, spicy, tangy, <laughs> she probably has no idea. She's just opening her mouth. It's more like, all right, you want to do this? Fine. If this is what gives you joy, fine, just feed me. But to her, in her own consciousness, she couldn't quite tell <laughs> what she's consuming. As dusk approached, the saint left with her party amidst a shower of rose petals her hands raised in blessing on the little lads. Their faces shone with the affection she had effortlessly awakened. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. Christ had proclaimed that this is the first commandment. Casting aside every inferior attachment, Ananda Muima offers her sole allegiance to the Lord. Not by the hair-splitting distinctions of scholars, but by the sure logic of faith. And the, child, the childlike saint has solved the only problem in human life, establishment of unity with God. The only problem of human life. Establishment of unity with God. Man has forgotten this stark simplicity, now befogged by a million issues. Refusing a monotheistic love to God, the nations disguise their infidelity by punctilious respect before the outward shrines of charity. These humanitarian gestures are virtuous because for a moment they divert man's attention from himself, but they do not free him from his single responsibility in life, referred to by Jesus as the first commandment. The uplifting obligation to love God is assumed with man's first breath of an heir freely bestowed by his only benefactor. So this is kind of master summing up for us now, what is it that we need to really be tuning into from Ananda Mohima's life? And we've, of course, said it in so many words, but he's now giving it to us as directly as he can. There is only one reality. There is only one responsibility. Until you don't accept that responsibility, you're just going to go round and round, round and round, 
until you're willing to accept that responsibility. So you can either keep going you know, everywhere you want and avoiding that reality and saying, all right, maybe I'll just do it here and maybe I'll just do it there. And you know, we're given, unfortunately, the free will to do that. But at the end of the day, we have to get to this truth. And I like that. He says the only problem that the human life needs to solve is how do I unite myself with God? If you can do that, that's it. Ananda Muima would say there are no human solutions to human problems, only divine ones. And so for everything that we're looking, every issue that we're feeling, there's only one solution. And Ananda Muima was trying to just live in that vibration all the time. There is a story of one disciple. I don't know if he was a disciple, but a devotee or a truth seeker coming to Yogananda with a list of questions and problems that he had in his life. So he would ask something to Yogananda and Yogananda would reply, love God. Then he would ask something, yeah, but what about this, this, this and that? And Yogananda would say, love God. <laughs> and then the guy, okay, okay. And then he will go to his next question, but what about also this, this, this and that? I have this issue. And Yogananda said, love God. <laughs> and then he kept going on for several times until Master just so exasperated, love God, like saying like, that's the only answer, really, you are looking for underneath everything. I mean, don't you realize that all your problems will be solved when you come to that point of your life that this is really the purpose, even why I'm incarnated in this lifetime. And this never got shared, but Swami Kriyananda said, I mean, like he told a group of us that this man, when he left, he told somebody else, ah, Yogananda didn't know what he was saying, just like, love God, love God. Like he was almost saying like, these saints nowadays, they just don't even know what to reply to other people. And that was, you know, interesting for us because many of us, we already know the answer. We just know that's what we need to do. We know that's the only solution. And still we kind of, yeah, yeah, okay, we will do that. But <laughs> after we just do these other things. So. For many of us, especially disciples and Kriyabans and those who are dedicating their lives more seriously to uh, freedom, I think we should come back again and again to these kind of answers and realizations when we are in troubles. Are we loving God strongly enough? Is it our love for God deep enough? Is it pure enough? Is it real enough? Uh, and I think that could help us to bring ourselves back on track, um, even emotionally. Okay, everything is a mess. I don't understand what I should be doing. But let me start by, am I loving God? I'm aware of his love for me. Am I aware of his presence in my life? And, and I think that could be a good solution. On one other occasion after her Ranchi visit, I had the opportunity to see Ananda Muima. She stood among her disciples some months later on the Serampur station platform, waiting for her train. Father, I am going to the Himalayas, she told me. Generous disciples have built me a hermitage in Dehradun. Um, if you've ever been there, it's a beautiful place to visit. Um, she has, of course, this ashram in Dehradun, but now her body and where her Samadhi Mandir is in Kankhal, in um, Haridwar. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place, very powerful place to go and meditate if you get the opportunity. As she boarded the train, I marveled to see that whether amidst a crowd, on a train, feasting or sitting in silence, her eyes never looked away from God. Within me, I still hear her voice an echo of measure, measureless sweetness. Behold, now and always, one with the eternal, I am ever the same. Beautiful. 
thus ends our chapter with Ananda Moima. A little short, it feels shorter than most. Um, but, you know, you can feel her presence already. And I hope we'll take that presence into these coming days as we go on and keep that mantra, I am ever the same. In fact, Ananda Moima is not just another saint that, you know, Yogananda shares on the book autobiography of Ayogeshi did had an impact in Yogananda's disciples <clears throat> and in Swami Kriyananda as well. He went back to India after, after Master's passing and he met Ananda Moima. He had an incredible um, connection, divine connection with her. He felt many times in her presence that he felt almost closer to Ananda Moima than he could feel himself closer to Master, which is a very interesting thing. I think her, his relationship with Master had that impersonality there. The respect was at a deeper level, but with Ananda Moima, Swami Kriyananda said he could just be a child. He could just be, an, you know, embraced by her sweetness, her, her purity. He could be a child in his in her presence. He could just let go of everything. And Ananda Moima saw the potential, the spiritual potential in Swamiji. And she even invited him when Swamiji was struggling, when he left um, the organization and you know he was starting Ananda, she asked him, you know, if what about if you come and live with us here? and just, you know, continue your spiritual journey and your, you know, attunement with your guru here in this setting with all of us. And Swami Priyananda, of course, said, my guru is my guru and I'm loyal to that. But, but for a moment, he just, he was so connected uh, to Ananda Moima. And then Ananda Moima also had an influence in many of us in Ananda, you know, sometimes where, when we think about her or meditate, you know, in her or about her, which is that there is a blessing there that comes because she had a very unique relationship with Yogananda from all these saints. I mean, of course, excluding our five gurus, Ananda Moima had an incredible impact, uh, not just only in Yogananda, but in masters disciples, isn't it? Is yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you see, because she's calling him father, so you know mm -hmm. that there's a, there's a very ancient relationship that exists between them. And we see from the few past lives that Master has shared of his, um, these saints, they come together, you know, often. Uh, in a, most of Master's lives, Sri Yukteswarji, Lahiri Mahashaya was always around in some form or the other. And so perhaps Ananda Moima, we know it from the Draupadi and the Arjuna lifetime for sure. But I'm sure there have been many others, as we said, especially since she's addressing him as father so often. Is, uh, there is a book, what is the Visits the Saints? That book? Visit to the Saints of India. Yeah, there is a book uh, titled Visits, Visit to the Saints of India, where there is an entire chapter of Swami Kriyananda meeting Ananda Moima, and he describes it so beautifully in depth. So I highly recommend for all of you to, to read and tune into that encounter that really marked a very important aspect in Swamiji's discipleship, because there were two or three moments that Ananda Moima gave him a particular advice, spiritual advice, and he took that to heart. And many times later on in the years to come, he shared Swamiji in many of his satsangs how her words really helped him to redirect his consciousness in that particular moment of his life. So it's a, something worth reading and meditating on it. Should we move on to yes, we can just introduce on. at least Giribala? This mm -hmm. is chapter 46, The Woman Yogi Who Never Eats. So if you are trying to figure out how to get to that stage, this is a chapter for all of us. And this is the uh, latest diet fad that we can all aspire for. So whither are we bound this morning? Mr. Wright was driving the Ford and he took his eyes off the road long enough 
to gaze at me with a questioning twinkle. From day to day, he seldom knew what part of Bengal he would be discovering next. God willing, I replied devoutly, we are on our way to see an eighth wonder of the world, a woman saint whose diet is thin air. Repetition of wonders after Therese Neumann. But Mr. Wright laughed eagerly just the same. He even accelerated the speed of the car. <laughs> more extraordinary, more extraordinary grist for his travel diary. Where are we? Okay. Mm. So we would like to know, would like to know more of this fasting saint. Her name is Giribala. I informed my companions. I first heard about her years ago from a scholarly gentleman, Stiti Lal Nandi. He often came to our Garpar Road home to tutor my brother Bishnu. I know Giribala well, Stiti Babu told me. She employs a certain yoga technique which enables her to live without eating. I was her close neighbor in Nawabganj near Ichapur. I made it a point to watch her closely. Never did I find evidence that she was taking either food or drink. My interest finally mounted so high that I approached the Maharaja of Bardwan and asked him to conduct an investigation. Astounded at the story, he invited her to his palace. She agreed to a test and lived for two months locked up in a small section of his home. Later, she returned for a palace visit of 20 days and then for a third test of 15 days. The Maharaja himself told me that these three rigorous scrutinies had convinced him beyond doubt of her non-eating state. It's fun <laughs> that all these saints have to go through these, like everybody's watching. Is she eating? Is she not eating? And you know, the world's just eager to find fault. It was just like eager to see. It can't be true. It's impossible. And you know, we just want to go through. Even in, in the uh, Catholic tradition, when somebody is, you know, needed to be uh, anointed as a saint, they go through a very rigorous, uh, you could say, investigation of their lives. And everybody will, you know, they'll be appointed a committee and this committee has to go and meet everybody who ever connected with this saint and get stories from them. And they're all trying to find some hidden agenda. Like, is this saint trying to, you know, draw people to themselves? Is his miracles, you know, just orchestrated? Has he just somehow convinced people of them? And, and only after years, in and these particular cases, entire, decades, decades, yeah, decades. An entire life sometimes goes on. Yeah, I mean, they're never, at least in the church, they're never made a saint in their, when they're alive, they're only made saints afterwards. It's more convenient that way, then you can control the narrative better. Um, you know, especially if we, when we see the movie Padre Pio very soon, hopefully. That's a beautiful movie to see. It's very contemporary Christian saint, a Catholic saint by the name of Padre Pio. And just everything that he had to go, he used to receive the stigmata, which is the uh, wounds of, what Christ experienced when he was on the cross. And, you know, just you'd have uh, kind of committee member after the other from the church coming to examine every wound, to see what he does, to see how he speaks, to be there when he's uh, even counseling other people. And it's just like so closely they want to watch you. And you can see Giribala as well, poor lady. Like, all right, let's make sure that she does not eat. This story of Stiti Babu's has remained in my mind for over 25 years, I concluded. Sometimes in America, I wondered if the river of time would not swallow the yogini before I could meet her. She must be quite aged now. I do not even know where or if she lives. But in a few hours, we shall reach Purulia. Her brother has a home there. We're going to stop there. Yeah, we're, we keep the excitement of whether does she live, does she not live, will she be there or not. I was just thinking like back then, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't phone somebody like, <laughs> is she there, is she alive or check on her Instagram page or, you know, like, like her latest stories or latest. Yeah. 
like it was very difficult to to know if those saints would be there would you know like so it was more intuitively the process of meeting a saint and reach to that destination and and here after 25 years i mean <laughs> of course we know that yogananda knew somehow this would happen and intuitively he knew about this encounter but you know living in this reality they couldn't check i mean it, are they going are they going to still be there will we have will be able to to have that exchange of energy and and i was thinking even throughout his the book every saint he met was just that at that level you know intuitively okay when we go there what are we going to find who we are going to meet first and he was giving that experience as well to his disciples to those who he was traveling with you know like okay let's see this is an adventure this is how it works you just need to follow and and see. putting out so much energy and putting so much energy indeed. not knowing yeah you know, what happens you you go there and she's not there all right let's yeah. get back home That's even so with anandome ma as you said yeah. you know she would travel so often and you could never know where she's going to be mm -hmm. uh swami jyotish tells of the story where when they came to india they didn't know where she's going to be with city so they'd you know try to figure out they're calling different disciples that they know of and someone says i think she's in you know varanasi right now and so they're like all moving towards varanasi and she's not there i think she's in and they said it took them several tries before they could figure out which city is she in at what time and then finally they said we had her darshan but you know it's like even here it's so sweet yeah, to be able master, to put out so much energy yeah like you can see here like master traveling for hours yeah. going through those little villages i assume you know dusty roads you know <laughs> not even cement on those roads you know with the car and just for hours and not knowing and by the time you reach there anybody will be there or just fascinating how you know when it needs to happen but he had a resolution and this trip was all about meeting saints and this book was a god-given mission of mm -hmm. writing you know a book just dedicated to saints and of course god would help him to make sure that all of us could benefit from his tapasya, his efforts and his love for God and to see the variety of saints and the way in which God flows so differently in so many other saints in India and the different missions they, they had. It's, it's grace to, for each one of us to open our understanding and not narrowing God in one particular expression or one particular teaching or one particular mission. I mean, you can see God through all these saints, you know, manifested so uniquely and so different from one another, yet all of them united through the same thread, which is their love for God and their unity with God. And that's the thing that is going to keep all of us united with one another our love for God. So, yeah, I'm interesting to see what he has to say about Giribala. Well, we'll